up with this um, podium real quick. Sorry. Hey, everyone. I'm Kate. Um, I work at First Prez. I hear that I'm the fourth person from First Prez to come speak. Thank you, Bella. Uh, and I just want you to know, maybe you're wondering, is there some sort of conspiracy going on uh, from First Prez? And the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> We do have a conspiracy to, you know, I've been working at First Press for nine years now, and we have never had a Furman student ministry intern, and that's going to change this year. So Mason was here uh, a couple weeks ago, I think, and Charlie was also here, and uh, Karen King last week. Um, but my name is Kate. I've been working in student ministry now for nine years as of last month. Um, my husband, Alex, actually just got a job here at Furman, and so he is working with the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute over in the Herring Center, and actually the Herring Center a few years ago bought one of my paintings, and, um, and so I feel like um, Alex and I sometimes will talk and we'll be like, I feel like God has given us a heart for Furman, and I just want to ask, I'm, I went to Clemson, but is it okay if I am a honorary paladin is that all right i've got the purple i've got the purple okay okay good um, i have two children i have isla who is three years old and that girl's a firecracker i'm still trying to figure her out um, but she's amazing she's very wise for a three-year-old and then I, my son hart is h-a-r-t um, he is six months old just went through the whole having a baby thing and so i'm back in the game but he is a joy bomb, and I just love that kid. Um, I love both my kids. But I just figured, you know, sometimes when people come and speak, they kind of lead with their strengths. I just feel like it's necessary for me to lead with my vices. Is that all right? Okay, here are some of my vices. The first one is that I am incredibly ADD. And now, some of you, can I get, can I just get like a, an applause for those of us in the room? Maybe they don't let people with ADD into Furman, but they let us into Clemson. Um, but I'm very ADD, and some, and some people think that that is somehow a weakness, but I definitely think it's one of my greatest superpowers because I can sit through like a 50-minute class, and y'all, I'll be in the fifth dimension the whole time. I am just in another world, and it's great because the time goes by pretty quickly. The second thing is I do not know my left from my right. That is like another really uh, toxic trait of mine. And uh, the third one, and I'm, I'm actually a little worried that I'm going to get judged for this, but I'm just going to lay it out, all out there. I love The Bachelor, okay? Now, only the girls are clapping, but I know you boys watch it too, okay? Don't act like you don't. My husband always walks in, and he's like, you're watching this again? She said, what? <laughs> I mean, like, he's really, I, I, listen, I know the boys like it too, but I love The Bachelor. I became a Bachelor fan in 2011 when I was in college. Um, my roommates showed it to me, and I was like, wow, I'm pretty sure this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And, and I've been watching almost every season since. And I think it's because it's like free people watching without people thinking you're weird. Like, I just watch people. I'm like, wow, this tells me so much about how humanity is. And if you need kind of an example of what I'm talking about, if a contestant gets the coveted one-on-one -on -one date with The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, you really get to see this really kind of strange thing play out where you're, they're put into this zone where they have to make – uh, an impression on this person and they have to tell them exactly who they are like 
in a day. And so everything that they need to know to marry this person, they got to get this out in a day. And so finally, when they get to the night portion of the date, they sit down and it's like a dinner. They actually never eat the food. But they sit down and then they immediately are like, you want to know who I am? Here's my wound. And they share their, their deepest wound, like their deepest trauma in life. That They're like, all right, in 12th grade, I got this really bad haircut, and it really affected me. And she's like, babe. And then they make out, and it's hilarious. <laughs> but, but they always lead with their wound. They're like, if you want to know who I am, here's my pain. Here's my trauma. And here's the thing, I think that there's something so valuable in acknowledging the things that God has done in, in your life, especially in terms of like walking you through a season of pain. Some of us are coming here tonight with a lot of pain, maybe a lot of trauma, but I think something that is so human is that we tend to identify who we are with our wounds. I think we tend to identify who we are with the things that have hurt us in our past. But here's what I believe that God really placed on my heart to say to you tonight. I believe that God is calling you not to identify with your wounds, but to identify with his. And he's not calling you to identify with your pain, but he's calling you to identify with your healing. And so tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. If you want to go ahead and get there, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21. We'll start with verse 21. But in the meantime, I want you to ask yourself two questions tonight. So as I'm speaking, I want you to have two questions in the very forefront of your mind. The first question is this. What is your wound you believe that Jesus is calling you to give to him? What does he want to heal in your life tonight? Now, I'm not going to say, and I'm not going to paint a picture like, oh, you're going to give it to him tonight. It's going to be this one-time thing, and then it's over. It's definitely a process, okay? But I think all of us have something that God is calling us to heal, or sorry, God is wanting to heal in us. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story very briefly. Um, So when I was 11 years old, Uh, My dad decided to leave our family and join another one. Um, This was something that deeply shaped me as an 11-year-old girl, a daughter, when I saw my dad go and have two other daughters that were not me. That was a very painful thing in my life. And I was not a Christian. I did not grow up in a Christian home. And so suddenly my identity was in the fact that my dad did, what I perceived my dad did not want me. And he did not want my brothers. And so out of, as a result of that, I had this very, very intense bitterness. I wasn't kind. I was definitely the mean girl in middle school. And I think that that should just tell you, like when you meet someone like that, just understand that that person's wounded. I was wounded. I was on the defense all the time. And then someone invited me to church. I heard the gospel for the first time when I was about 14 or 15 years old. It blew my, my entire mind. It completely transformed my life. And then uh, one of the first things that God called me to do in terms of my sanctification, he said, it's time to forgive your dad. And I remember being like 14 or 15 and being like, I don't think so. Like, how about I just start going to church first? You know, it was, it was one of those things where I felt like God immediately was like, I've forgiven you. Now it's time for you to forgive him. 
And that was one of those things that I remember having this death grip on my pain saying, no, God, you can have anything else in my life, but you can't have this. And I think that's how sometimes we treat our pain and treat the things that we've been through. God, you can touch anything else in my life, but this is mine. This is the thing that I can control. This is part of my identity. This is a part of who I am. I can't let this go. And here God is like saying, give it to me. And so one of the things that God actually helped me do, and it was probably the first time that ever since God speaking to my heart, was he, in, in the way that is more, more clear than an audible voice, like a soul voice, God said, um, I want you to view your dad as your, a brother who has been wounded. Just stop putting the, like, the stuff about how he like, failed as a dad. It's, just let that go for a second. I'll be your father. Now I want you to treat your dad as a brother who's wounded. And then all of a sudden I started, like God was just showing me all these layers of understanding that I didn't have before. You know, his dad before him, or his parents were teenage parents. They had him when, uh, out of wedlock when they were 17. They, were, they were, went through a lot. And so he was exposed to a lot of things. And then before that, my grandfather, when he was five years old, was dropped off in, at an orphanage, not because they couldn't afford him, but because they didn't want him when he was five years old. And so I want you to see how wounds and pain gets passed down from generation to generation to generation. And here's the reason why I wanted to speak this tonight. And the reason why if you feel or sense any passion in my voice tonight, it's because I believe that God wants to stop this pain with your generation. Because I'm not smart enough to come up with this, but a man named Richard Rohr came up with or said this. He said, pain that is not transformed is transmitted. Pain that is not transformed by God's spirit is transmitted onto the next generation. It is transmitted into your marriages. It is transmitted onto your children. It is transmitted onto your relationships. And so I believe that God has a healing work to do in you tonight. And so question number two, there is no question that Jesus is passionate about your healing but my second question is this, are you passionate about your healing? You might be thinking, Kate, like, duh, I'm, obviously I would like to be healed. But I think a strange thing happens when you're wounded. It becomes all-consuming. It's all you can think about. It's like your own wounds. My daughter Isla is currently obsessed with boo-boos. The other day I was driving in my car and I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw her and she was picking at her scat and I was like, girl, what are you doing? Like, and she kept saying, mommy, I'm bleeding. And, and she does that almost every time we get in the car. It's like her scab will heal and then she'll start picking at it again. And I'm like, God, isn't that just a picture of sometimes what we do with our own wounds? We become fixated on them. And there's something that we, we find soothing about watching the blood, watching ourselves bleed. And God is saying, no, 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 no. I have abundant life for you. You don't have to fixate on this thing. I have a healing work to do in your life. You don't have to like constantly fixate on this. This is not who you are. And so tonight we are going to be talking about what it means to be hungry for healing. So if you want to write a title, I don't know if that you're the kind of person who cares about that. Hunger to heal. To be hungry, hungry to heal, it means that you are ready and willing to do anything that it takes to put away your shame, 
You know, find your identity with your pain and you reach for Jesus with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. Okay, so let's look at this story in Mark chapter 5. This is the story of the, um, of the woman with chronic bleeding. I'm going to start at uh, verse 21. A large crowd followed. Uh, let me quickly tell you what's going on. So Jesus is being, is being led by Jairus. He is um, a Pharisee, and his daughter is sick. And so Jesus is on his way to another healing. And obviously, a very large crowd is forming around Jesus. He's very popular at this time. People are trying to get healing from him. So a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Okay, we don't get her name. We don't get anything else about her other than she has been plagued by this condition for 12 years. I want you to understand something that in this time and in this place, that meant that she was probably on the fringes of society. She was considered ceremonially unclean. So she, she, she could not go into the temple. She could not be touched. So can you imagine no one touching you for 12 years? Can you imagine the isolation she must have felt? Can you imagine what it would be like to just go on for 12 years, wondering if this would ever stop? One year goes by, you wonder if it's going to stop, and you just keep on going. 12 years later, you would start to lose hope. And I want you to, I just feel like when it comes to hunger to heal, I just want you to hear this desperation. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and she had spent all that she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. You see, our pain and our, and our wounds actually cost us something, don't they? It usually costs us something. Whether it's relationships, whether it, I mean, you could go down the list of what it could cost you. Your health. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Okay, so I want to talk about a couple of things that she did. Okay, so this woman, she the first thing that she does is she went to where Jesus was. So step one, she went to where Jesus was. I want to take a minute and just hang out there, because a lot of times when we are going through something that's deeply painful, I find, at least in my own life, I run away from the places where Jesus go, where Jesus is. And I'm not saying that Jesus isn't everywhere. Jesus is everywhere all the time. He will go into the depths for anybody. But I'm just saying, like, a lot of times when I am suffering or when I'm going through something, I tend to check out. I like Netflix. When I'm in pain, I tend to find distraction in just about anything else. But this woman went to where Jesus was. Are you going to the places that you know you're going to have an encounter with Jesus? Are you going to his word? Are you going to a place like this where you're surrounded by people who can encourage you and walk through the pain with you? Are you going to those places? Or are you doing this? Mm-mm. I'm not going to go there mentally. I'm not going to feel that thing. I'm not going to be vulnerable. So the first thing that she did was that she went to the place where Jesus was. And the second thing that she did was this: she fought for an encounter with Jesus. And I think that this is one of the most challenging parts of the story because I feel like if she was anything like me, I, I don't like a line. You know, I will pick out all my favorite clothes at a store and I will see a line and I'll be like, never mind. I'm not going to get any of it. 
But here she is. She sees these crowds, and you got to. It was so loud. I'm sure people were all asking for the same thing. I'm sure she was thinking, "Oh, I shouldn't touch people. Oh, I hope no one recognizes me. I'm not supposed to be here." And yet she fought for an encounter with Jesus. Um, and I, I just want to ask you: When you go to God's Word, I want. I will. Before I ask you, I just want to encourage you that the first five minutes or the first 10 minutes of being in God's word is going to be difficult because it takes a minute for us to get out of the distractions. The first 10 minutes of prayer for me is always the most difficult because like I said, I'm pretty ADD and I'm like, oh, wait, what about this thing? Oh, I got to do this. Oh, I've got to like talk to this person. I need to call this person right now. And it's like those first 10 minutes of wrestling and fighting for an encounter with God are absolutely crucial. And so are you fighting for an encounter with Jesus? When you go to his word, do you immediately go to excuses of like, I don't get this. Or I don't really, you know, I'm not really a Bible scholar. I've never read the Bible before or whatever. Or I actually have other things to do. I really actually should be studying right now. Or are you fighting and wrestling to meet with Jesus? So that's the second thing she does. The third thing is that the encounter with the person of Jesus is what freed her from her condition. Her encounter with Jesus led to freedom. I don't want to overcomplicate this, but I think a lot of times we spend our lives um, doing the things of God and forgetting about intimacy with God. I think a lot of times we, especially in college, I mean, gosh, y'all, y'all are so busy. Like so many wonderful Christian things, especially with FCA. But do you find yourself doing all the things that Christians do without the intimacy of God? I just want to use this as an illustration because I'm very accustomed to the world of babies right now because my son's six months old. But there was this, um, this experiment done where... Um, these babies, this was a long time ago, these babies were given all the things that they need, like milk and a bed to sleep in. They were given all the things that they need, needed to survive, but they didn't have physical touch, and those babies died. And here's the thing. I, I want us to remember that we need that intimacy with our Father, that he wants you to just crawl up into his lap so he can embrace you. And sometimes some of the greatest healing that I've ever experienced with God has just been in the embrace of God in prayer. Not begging, not just listing things that I need, but just sitting there quietly in his presence and knowing that he was right there in the room with me. Okay, so I'm going to kind of pick up where I left off in the story. Verse 30, at once Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. Okay, you have to know, she has been told that she can't go near anyone, especially a rabbi. 
Like, especially someone like Jesus. She can't go near him. And so she obviously is afraid. And so Jesus um, says, he does something that God does in the garden where he says, Adam, where are you? Obviously, he knows the answer. But he's telling her, all right, who touched me? And suddenly you can imagine like this, the crowds going silent and her coming forward. And suddenly she has been given a voice in dignity. Can you imagine being like unheard, untouched, on the fringes, and then suddenly here you are in the middle of a crowd and the crowds are stopping, they're listening to you. And he said, tell me the truth. And she told him the whole story. So here is Jesus giving her the dignity of having a new identity and a story to tell. And so here he is creating space for her to share her story. See, Jesus wants to transform your pain and turn it into your story. A story to tell that is going to be something that it makes an impact for his kingdom. She overcame her fear and she testified. See, our wounds often cause us to live lives of fear and shame and isolation and hiding. And here's God bringing her out of fear and shame and isolation. And he's saying, you've got a story to tell. And I can just imagine like this woman who is only known for being the woman of with chronic bleeding for 12 years now people are going to look at her that's the woman that got healed and the fifth the fifth thing is this so um he said to her so she came and fell at his feet trembling with fear and told him the whole truth and he said to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering her identity was transformed from unclean and unnamed to daughter. And she was freed to a life of peace. Her full identity up until this point is the woman with chronic bleeding. And after this powerful encounter with Jesus, she is now daughter. Can you imagine the honor he gives her when he tells her that her faith has healed her. I, I that's one of those verses. Like I've been to seminary, I've done the whole thing. I'm like, I don't get that. <laughs> like, what does that mean? But, but he says her faith has healed her, and it was his power and her and presence miraculously combined with her faith, where this thing happened. This amazing healing happened, and I can't help but wonder. If this woman has heard a good thing said about her in 12 years and he upholds just the most beautiful thing about her, it's her faith. And here's Jesus upholding the quality of her faith as the greatest asset in the kingdom of God. I want to just tell you tonight that Jesus wants to rescue you out of your shame and free you to a life in his kingdom and give you a name and a new identity for your gift and not your curse. 
You know, Jesus didn't rewind the past 12 years of her life. He could have. He didn't rewind the past 12 years of her life and say, okay, none of that actually happened. I mean, think about it. The pain is still there from 12 years of her life lost, right? 12 years where I don't know if she, her children grew up and she didn't get to watch them grow up. She may have lost her marriage. She may have lost other relationships. She may not have been able to go to certain funerals. She may have missed out on just, can you imagine the amount of things in 12 years that you would miss out on? And yet you don't see her heart being burdened by bitterness, but freed to peace. You see, bitterness will surely rob you of the abundant life that God has for you. Bitterness and carrying the weight of what life should have been for you will prevent you from experiencing the abundant life that God has for you coming down the road. Um, Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. Don't allow anger and bitterness about your expectations of what your life should have been make its home in your heart. Instead, combat anger with compassion and combat bitterness with forgiveness. And I want to, you know, I'm standing here at Furman University and I want to tell you about a friend of mine who walked this campus um, her name was Perrin Thompson at the time. She ended up getting married, and her name was Perrin Hall. Um, but we, I was at Clemson. She went to Furman. Um, and I want to tell you about her because I'm here, and I think of her when I'm here. Um, she probably had one of the greatest impacts on my life. In March of 2010, Perrin was told that she had an incurable form of cancer. She was 19 years old. I actually debated whether or not to share this example because she was given five years to live and she ended up living for six. But she was someone who nonetheless found her entire healing in Jesus and she was the picture of freedom and joy and she exceeded her wounds in life because she was marked by her encounters with Jesus, not the cancer that threatened her life. And she found, her he- found healing in her soul here on earth despite her circumstances. And she used to write a lot. And I would love to share something with you that she wrote. This was on the anniversary of her diagnosis. I'm going to skip some. But I remember every moment of the appointment when I found out that I had cancer. I remember telling a few friends um, that night and the looks on their faces when they heard the news. I remember leaving Greenville not knowing when I would ever come back. I remember getting wheeled into the hospital in Richmond a few days later and being taken into the oncology floor for the first time. I remember March 8th, the day that they told me that I had kidney cancer and that there was no cure. I remember the doctor's appointment when they confirmed it was kidney cancer, and I cried solely because it meant that I could not go to France. I remember going in, and then she kind of talks about some of the surgeries and some of the different diagnoses, different doctor's visits. And then she says this, and she says, in, in this one year, I have learned more big life lessons than I ever thought possible. And yet I feel I have so much, so many more still to grasp. I have learned what it means clinging to the Lord when literally everything in your life starts falling apart. 
I have learned the value of family, and I've seen how amazing and wonderful they truly are. I have a renewed thankfulness for my friends who have been there for me through thick and thin. I have seen the value of making bad days better and forcing yourself to look at the positive. My levels of empathy have grown, especially for other cancer patients, but I have also seen that no one is invincible. And even though college students live as though there's that as though college students live as if they have forever, life can quickly change. And I'm grateful for the sky and the sun and the beauty of spring. Grateful for the days when I feel strong enough to dance or walk to class. Grateful that I can now eat without being sick. I am more grateful for the little things in life. A lesson I never would have learned without the pain of cancer. And so someone asked me a while ago if I would change my cancer. If I were omnipotent, would I take away this past year? And honestly, my first thought was no, I wouldn't. Cancer has shown me how strong I really am and has completely changed me. And although many people don't, see, don't immediately see that change, I feel it in me. I feel like a completely different person than I was a year ago, and I wouldn't want to go back to that other person. Now granted, would I change my cancer for tomorrow? It made me better for the future if I were omnipotent. But as for today, as for yesterday, I would not make it any different. That is pain transformed in the presence of Jesus. And Perrin was ready to meet Jesus because she got in his presence and had encounters with him daily. And she fought every ounce of bitterness that could have stolen her life away. And instead, she testified to his goodness. So today, don't delay. I want you to get to the place where Jesus is and ask the Lord to reveal your wounds, wounds that maybe you've been too afraid to confront, wounds that you have been distracting yourself from. I want you to get into his presence first, not your best friends, not your family, not your mom. Get into his presence first. Get to the place where you know he is and fight for an encounter with him. Reach out and don't let go and wrestle until you are blessed by him. Give him your pain and ask him to transform it. Then bring others into it. Share your encounter with Jesus. Ask for their prayers and their encouragement as you become passionate about your healing. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the way that you are moving on Furman's campus. God, I thank you for the work that you are doing by your spirit in the hearts and the lives of these students. God, they are right on the cusp of just an incredible season of life where they get to make these huge decisions about what jobs they're going to take and God, what who they might choose to marry, who they're going to choose to be the father and the mother of their children. God, they are right in this. And so, God, I pray that you transform their pain, Lord, so that they don't pass it on, God. I pray that every generational wound stops here. God, I pray a special blessing over them. God, as they testify of your goodness and testify that you are the healer, I pray all of these in the powerful, wonderful, healing name of Jesus Christ. Amen.